0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Interesting goings-on, of course, with the Ontario Municipal Board hearing about ward boundaries. We know that, of course, this is something that uh, city council was supposed to have dealt with some time ago. Uh, They didn't do it and didn't do it very effectively. As a matter of fact, they hired consultants, uh, paid an awful lot of money for the uh, consultant report, and then basically said, nah, we'll just do it ourselves. And uh, a couple of citizens... Uh, took umbrage with that. Actually, quite a few did, but two of them actually filed petitions with the Ontario Municipal Board, and that hearing is ongoing right now. Joey Coleman from the Public Record has been following that. He's uh, covering the meeting and he uh, joins us on the Bill Keller Show to uh, give us his perspective on this. How are you doing this morning, Joey? I'm doing well,
1: Bill. It's an uh, early morning out here in Stony Creek for me.
0: Well, the sun is rising and will soon be rising, I guess, on, on uh, another day of the OMB hearing. Give me your impressions on what you've seen so far, because this was a, a very polarizing debate, of course, uh, in this community for quite some time. How is it shaping up in, in, in the hearing itself?
1: Well, in the hearing itself, the city has been very much struggling, Um, you know, the city council has to try to justify exactly why did they ignore the consultants and all that public input to create boundaries, which really haven't done much to change anything of the status quo. There's a few moves here and there, but it's generally these boundaries are designed to protect the incumbents. They're not designed to deal with the issue that's been ongoing for almost 20 years now. the hearing itself is being presided over by dr bruce kanowski he's the head of the uh env- <clears throat> sorry bell one sec go ahead um, sorry about that he's the head of the environmental land tribunals of ontario so this is not just the top omb official he's the guy who oversees all of these quasi-judicial bodies and he's been running a very tight hearing um he's joined so usually the omb is a one-member hearing this is a two-member panel He's joined by lawyer Paula Bontis, another OMB member, which is unusual for the OMB. And I Yeah, they usually
0: it. just have one person overseeing these meetings. That, that's been the tradition anyway.
1: Yeah, and normally for ward boundary reviews, it's one person overseeing. So this is unique that you have the top person of the entire body of tribunals And another member present. And I read that as the OMB is very much aware of the history of Hamilton City Council in litigating things and making sure that when the city council, if the city council does not get what they want from the OMB, that the OMB has protected itself if the city council goes to the courts and tries to argue that the hearing wasn't fair.
0: The uh, basis of this, and I I don't want to make this too uh, complicated, but seems to be, uh, and you heard Larry DeAnne, former Mayor Larry DeAnne, was on with us yesterday, Joey, talking about this, and he repeated uh, what those that are defending the city's position seem to be saying more often than not is that the real issue here is about community interests and and their fear, uh, as they stated it anyway at City Council, was that uh, the proposals uh, put forth by the consultant's report essentially would have torn communities apart uh, and, and that community identity that, uh, that they felt was such a strong element here was going to be destroyed. Is, is that how it's playing out at the hearings, too?
1: So the city's trying to argue community of interest, but the problem that they have is that what we have is we have four wards in the western suburbs, so that's Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, but we only have three wards in Stony Creek, Glanbrook. And we have basically the same populations between both. And the eastern suburbs are just as agricultural as the western suburbs. So the question the city has not been able to answer and it's been posed by the OMB panel to the city is why do the western suburbs deserve overrepresentation? Meanwhile, the eastern suburbs, especially Bimbrook in 2026 is gonna be underrepresented compared to the western suburbs. Um, and the other challenge and it was a very good line of questioning from uh, Rob DeBurkey, who is one of the appellants, where he had Dr. Freeman on the stand and said, Would it surprise you to know that the Agricultural Society is not headquartered in Flamborough, but actually their building is in Ancaster? And what DeBurkey was getting at was that Hamiltonians cross these ward boundaries all the time. We don't live our lives within ward boundaries. So when the city is trying to argue that these are solid communities that cannot interact with each other, the problem is, is that the city itself encourages people to go between wards for services. So there's really not a good argument for that that the city's been able to put forth other than, well, that's the way it's always been.
0: Yeah, which is what we heard from an awful lot of the councillors, of course, when they were, they were kicking this thing around over the last number of years. Talk, talk to me, Joey, about the, the the impact of what they call the Carter decision. This was this uh, Supreme Court of Canada 1991 decision that involved electoral boundaries. It was in Saskatchewan, but, but I'm getting the sense that the city's uh, lawyers or the people representing the city in this case are trying to use that as, as the basis, as the foundation for their argument right now uh, that says that you can't just do this by population, that there have to be other factors involved.
1: Yeah. So the Carter decision talked very much about something called effective representation. So that's the idea that you have to be within a political boundary that gives you the ability to have effective voice. So, for example, you would not want to have a political riding where half the people were conservative voters and half the people were NDP voters, and the politician has to choose one or the other side and then ignore the other half. Um, And So that's where we talk about the idea that you want to have communities of interest together. And the Carter decision talks about this and says you can have a variation. They didn't set an exact formula, but it's become de facto that you could have a ward or a riding uh, with over 25% variation from the overall average if you can justify that there's a unique need for that to be so that people have effective representation. And that's how we end up with smaller ridings in rural areas of Canada, such as, say, northern Ontario, where effective representation includes being able to see your representative and your representative be able to see you. And for flying communities the reality is the representative can only fly to so many places. Now, what the city's trying to argue is that Flamborough is much the same, that the councillor shouldn't have to drive long distances. That's their main argument with Flamborough. The challenge being is that very different circumstances, because the the representative can make it there, though, yes, uh, it is a longer drive. And so the city's been trying to argue that, The OMB has been pushing back extremely hard on that issue. Uh, The OMB chair yesterday, you know, it said, you know, if we, if, why don't we put up a sign in Bimbrook letting people know if you move to Bimbrook, your vote will only be worth half that of somebody in rural Flamborough in 2028.
0: The numbers are are the numbers, and and we need to talk about that, and I know that sometimes people uh, that are, are, you know, hanging on to the city position here are somewhat dismissive of that, but... By population projections, Joey, 70,000 people are going to be living in Ward 7 uh, by 2026. 70,000. That's about the same number of people that are going to be living in Wards 10, 13, and 14 combined. Uh, How does the city rationalize the fact that they're trying to, what they think anyway, protect community, but at the same time... They don't seem to pay much attention to this idea, but the fact that the numbers are growing and, and that underrepresentation seems to be, uh, I, I think, a major concern that, that both city council and now the city's lawyers seem to be trying to downplay.
1: Well, this is actually, there is one clash that is occurring right now. So the city has object. so 25 people have sought participant status and 24 of them were approved without any objection there's one participant that the city has been very aggressively objecting to speaking, and that's a McMaster PhD candidate, Rachel Barnett. And Rachel is also the only visible minority to ask to be a participant. And the city is objecting to her speaking on the grounds that she's going to be speaking to a academic paper, which she presented at a conference, the Canadian Political Science Association conference this summer. Her paper found that because we overweigh our suburbs so much in Hamilton that the uh, the average white vote in Hamilton has 10% more worth than a minority vote, which is the second worst rate in Ontario. So we're getting to that issue of equity of vote. And so the city is very strongly objecting to the OMB even considering Minority representation as part of the hearing here. The problem that the city has with that, though, is that one of their expert witnesses, who failed to meet the test of expert when challenged, brought up the issue. Uh, he, when he described Dundas, he described it as a community of interest in part because it is an Anglo-Saxon community with only seven percent minorities, which brought the race issue into b- alive in the OMB hearing, and that's one of the side effects of the fact that most of our immigrants and most of our vi- visible minorities tend to live in these wards which are overpopulated it's not the intent but the problem for the city is that the carter decision talks about minority protection and minority representation
0: exactly so it kind of looks like the city lawyers are cherry picking here they want to rec- they want they want to put the, the carter decision out there as the foundation but they don't want to include all the elements of the carter decision which includes representation of minorities
1: yeah, and the city, will, uh, the lawyers that the city has hired has done a very good job of trying to argue with what they have. The ultimate problem here is that council decided they did not want to actually change the boundaries in any way that would cause them discomfort. And so they created their own self-serving boundaries, which now we as taxpayers are paying three lawyers from Toronto to try to defend.
0: Yeah, let's uh, talk about those numbers. We mentioned that a little while ago before the OMB hearing started. Uh, we're already up to about $470,000, I think, aren't we, for the consultant's report uh, that uh, the city paid for that they basically ignored. Uh, they don't seem to want to give us even a ballpark number as to how much this is costing uh, Hamilton taxpayers because, they, as you mentioned, they've had to hire outside lawyers to uh, to defend city council's position on this. So the chances of this thing becoming a rather substantial cost is, is uh, pretty good, I think, at this stage, given the fact that this is carrying on to the extent that it is.
1: Oh, uh, this is gonna be easily... Over $600,000, and that's not including if the council decides they want to take this to the divisional court afterwards. And, you know, we're going into an election year. We're going into a budget where council has announced that they're going to decrease capital spending next year in order to try to hold the line on taxes in an election year. We have, uh, we've got departments have been told 1.5% budget increase. The library says they need 1.9%, which is a difference of $140,000 from what they're being told to come in at and so we're going to have a council which is going to be parading you know various departments at thirty thousand a hundred thousand yet there's this unlimited spend basically on something that is completely unnecessary they hired consultants the consultants gave them options had they selected the options we wouldn't be here today spending this money
0: joey did you get any sense from the chair or i guess the co-chairs really of the, of the hearing here uh, as to what this uh, this is heading towards, what the outcome is—is is at the end of this—is uh, the, the the pot of gold at the end here that they're actually going to say you're going to choose this, this is the, the method here, this is the the prototype that we want to use. Are they actually going to make a, a recommendation or are they simply going to dismiss the city's recommendation?
1: So they do actually have to implement some work. Okay. And so uh, Rob DeBrucke has proposed three separate uh, arrangements that he'd like to see the board implement. Now the board's not bound to implement any decision. They can do their own. But the reality is, so De, DeBrucke has brought forth two of the recommendations from the consultants and said, these are recommendations that I, as the appellant, feel should be implemented and then he's also created another map which it, it, achieves plus or minus minus 10 percent parity of all wards and i've looked at the map map and i really like his map because the thing i like the most about his map is that it creates a ward south of the link and the reality is and you know this bill as uh, you represent ward 7 that the needs of people south of the link are very different than those north of the link. they're very different neighborhoods and there really is a community of interest south of the link that should have its own representative on city council because they're unique needs. And they're very different than those on the North Mountain, which is the older, now approaching 50, 60-year-old neighborhoods. You
0: know, I I had this discussion with Larry Diani yesterday. We were both on that city council, of course, that first amalgamated city council. And, and there was a map floating around back then, Joey, back in 2000. Well, I guess it was 1999 because it was before the election that actually had that Ward 7 divided up. And, 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 and actually the southernmost ward that was being proposed at that time uh, was going to include a little bit of Ward 6 and 8 as well just to kind of, you know, to, to fluff up the population size. Uh, but the transition board and the, and the provincial government at the time decided, no, 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 we're just going to leave everything the way they are. If they had done what they were supposed to do back then, we wouldn't be here today.
1: Oh, absolutely. I I, I often uh, remark that children, or well, they're no longer children, teenagers that are in grade 12, that are going to graduate high school this spring, have known nothing but the new city of Hamilton, and yet, and I'm sort of in that sandwich generation where I was 18 when we were amalgamated. Yet I tend to look and, you know, the politicians tend to be o- older, and that's everywhere, and they're still fighting the battles of their generation, whereas my generation is looking and our battle is we're battling against other cities for jobs and economic development. And so it's, it's one of those things where this needed to be done a long time ago, and it becomes more and more painful every time we put it off.
0: Is there a possibility that they could still go back to the uh, consultant's report and say, okay, we'll take one of those? Because there are two options that are available there, too.
1: Yes, and that's uh, what I would expect that the board is going to do. The board is going to make its ruling, I would expect, by the end of November. Um, Dr. Uh, Kineski, the chair, uh, he knows Hamilton very well. He's a former chief planner at the city of Burlington. He's shown his knowledge of Hamilton in his questions, uh, his deep knowledge of some of our communities. So... There's definitely going to be a ruling, and um, I wrote a long analysis on my website a few weeks ago. The other thing here that I know we're running low on time is the split of Ainsley Wood that's been proposed by council. So, yeah, what do you people, think of that, Joe? Well, it, absolutely a terrible miscalculation by the city because in 2013 in Kingston, the Ontario Municipal ward so there in Kingston, the council tried to split the student neighborhood between four different wards, and the OMB slammed the city for doing so because it removed the opportunity for students to be effectively represented. represented. And so not only did the OMB declare that students were a community of interest that needed protection and creation of wards, but they actually ruled that because of the way that they're treated by cities, that they're a minority entitled to additional protection. But there's also the fact that council did that behind closed doors with zero public consultation, zero public input. So well, you know, when the council's parading, and they're going to parade that the OMB is on Democratic, well, the OMB is allowing everybody who sought participant status was granted it by the OMB. And the OMB is holding their meetings wide open for the public to come and attend, whereas council created their latest ward boundaries behind closed doors amongst themselves, and we still don't know how they voted on it or why.
0: Well, if nothing else, though, what it has done is energize the student community, which is a, a good thing. I mean, you and I have talked for years about uh, getting the, the, the university students engaged in the process, and they certainly are. And you're right. We are right out of time. Uh, what time? Are they, these are the guys are going to get started in just a couple of minutes, though, so you better get in there, I suppose.
1: Yeah, so uh, hearing today is from 930 to 430 for arguments and uh, testimony, and then public delegation. So this is the participant statements. You have to be pre-registered. You can't walk in if you're not uh, and speak if you're not registered, but it's definitely worth coming out tonight stony creek municipal center 70 or sorry 777 highway 8 it's at the end of the hsr 55 bus for those that use the hsr 630 tonight the public gets their say and i i honestly believe bill that this is going to be one of the most important decisions in the history of the city of hamilton and i encourage people to come out tonight and see democracy in action for themselves
0: absolutely i agree with you Uh, by the way if they want to follow you on twitter what's the handle Uh, Joey Coleman and the website's
1: thepublicrecord.ca and I'll be live blogging all day throughout the hearing.
0: And we'll be reading it. Thanks again, Joey. Good talking with you. Thank you, Bill. Joey Coleman, of course, uh, from the Public Record, who will be uh, attending the OMB hearing a little bit later on. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML.
0: We've been uh, talking off and on over the last couple of weeks about Highway 403 up by Ancaster, of course, uh, the top of the hill and actually going down the hill. And there was a report that went to council a couple of weeks ago that suggested that uh, the province needs to widen that road. Well, that's uh, that's a, a, a very worthwhile project, and, and I'm fully supportive of that. But there's another project that's been on the books even longer than that, and that, of course, is a point of getting an on-ramp uh, onto the 403 that used to be there. was taken away some years ago because of the construction on the link. And uh, Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson has been working diligently to try to get this thing done, and well, I just drove by there this morning, and there are no shovels in the ground yet. Uh, we uh, hook up now with uh, Lloyd Ferguson, the councillor for Ancaster for Ward Twelve, but what, uh, trying to get an update on what's happening there. Lloyd, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me on, Bill.
0: Well, this this is a, a big deal for for people in that area, uh, and and access onto Highway 403. And we've talked about you know having a more efficient highway system, and how the province is supposed to be partnering with the city to make that happen. But, uh, and we'll get into the expansion thing in a couple of seconds, I'm sure. But let's talk a little bit about this ramp project and why it hasn't happened yet.
2: Okay. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult to get things done in a government environment. But when you have two governments involved, it's, it's next to impossible. And uh, that's the case here because it's a city project. The city council has, uh, through my recommendation, has... Uh, made the decision to uh, go through the environmental assessments, and go through primary design, that cost of about $400,000, and then we have to go off and negotiate with the MTO. So now you have to get the MTO on side, and you may recall you had me on your show a few years ago where the MTO just said, no, we won't do it. Yeah. And so I went political on it through uh, Ted McMacon, who got me a meeting with the minister, who just happened to be Kathleen Wynne at the time and uh, she was very interested. They gave me 15 minutes to talk to her, and after an hour and 20 minutes, I said, i got to go. But uh, she then turned to her director and said, Made this, make this happen. So that was a big breakthrough. So now we go into the technical stuff, and um, over the last three years, we've been able to get the uh, geometrics approved. We've been able to get the modeling approved. We've been able to get the design approved, which is a big issue because you need a 500-meter-long speed change lane. After the link speed change lane, which bumps you into Gulf Links Road. And originally they said the bridge had to come down, be expanded out to allow the additional lane. But now we've come to a conclusion that we can shift the highway towards the piers in the middle to allow another speed change lane to go under Gulf Links Road. So that was a big hurdle to get that cleared. What I'm up against now is, um, well, first of all, the funding, they're saying this is 100% city cost. And um, I suspect I'd have trouble convincing my council colleagues to spend five million dollars on a, a provincial highway and so my hope is that we can get a 50 50 funding model because it, while it is a provincial highway it's a city that is requesting it to relieve congestion on wilson street and, um, and and so i think i'm going to have to go back political on that one to get help they've also said that uh, you know at their sole discretion they have to, they can give, uh, direct us to remove a lien from the uh, link that goes to westbound three, Currently, there's two lanes there, yeah, there yeah. And narrow to one, and they're saying we, you know, they want us at their discretion anytime they ask to remove a lane, and we're not sure that's really necessary. They also want us to put traffic queue system in at our expense, if required, which is that green light that reduces one car at a time from the link uh, if they're finding congestion and if the collision rate's too high. Um, that's not a terribly expensive thing, but it's another thing technically we have to get through. But uh, I, I guess the biggest thing I'm going to have to get help with Ted on is uh, they're insisting that we use the MTO procurement model and that the city must uh, uh, call the contract and must supervise it and pay them to have inspectors on the site. And our engineering staff say that, and it is. I know from my previous experience, I used to do a lot of MTO work. They have a very convoluted very uh, sophisticated procurement model which our staff are not used to and won't use uh, we would use the city's procurement model and so i think that the solution to this is either have the, the mto call a contract and supervise it or let the city do it to our own procurement system so those are the hurdles that are still in front of us uh this is by no means done yet uh, but it's very, very difficult to work through the bureaucracy of both the municipal government and a uh, provincial government to try to get the results that are, uh, that the, uh, the public expects. And this will benefit not only Ancaster, but also the West Mountain, because right now there's only one, after the link, there's only one access to 403 to go westbound. And, and that's way up at Wilson Street, out near where the, the new Lowe's is. Mm-hmm. And, and, um... Uh, there's four eastbound accesses. And so it's too bad it was ever taken out, but you you can't undo time. There's no land required because it's put it right back where it was before. The noise attenuation is all in place. And and so, um, you know, we're ready to go with the city, but we've got to get through these last remaining issues.
0: Let me ask you about a couple of things on that. And, and I'll, I'll start with the last one first, if you don't mind. Why was it sure. taken out in the first place? Because I'm looking at the design, as you've described it to us, because you've been on the show before talking about this. And every time I drive by there, Lloyd, I'm thinking, I understand, okay, that you know there's a configuration here with the link and, and the connection uh, onto Russo. I, I get all that stuff. But but it seemed to me as if that ramp was fine the way it was. And all of a sudden, no, it's it's just getting in the way now. Uh, it doesn't, you're not reinventing the wheel here. I mean, this is this is really just putting something back that was there initially.
2: Well, I'll go back to my first comment, then you went to the last, I'll go back to the first. The problem was, and I wasn't on council then.
0: No, I know. Yeah. And
2: it, In fact, I was, uh, you know, the, the head of Duffer Construction. We, in fact, built it, uh, But the, so I remember building it. But the reason it was taken out was because of this problem with the second speech change thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, actual standards say that speed lane change must be, it used to be 1,500 feet, now it's 500 meters, to allow cars to accelerate in order to move into live traffic. Yeah. And and what they're going to do, they, they wanted the city, if they wanted to keep that ramp open, to pay for the demolition of the Gulf Links Road Bridge and extending it out because uh, it wouldn't fit. Yeah, the, that speed change lane, it's complicated because there's a speed change lane from the link and there's a truck climbing lane, and then you'd add another speed change lane. So it's from an engineering perspective, it's a tricky thing to design. So the city at that time didn't want to pay to extend the Gulf Links Road Bridge, and so decided to take the ramp out. But since that time, there's been a com- uh, um, a population, I'll call it an explosion. You know, when I went on Ancaster Council in '83, the population of Ancaster was fourteen thousand. Now it's forty thousand. So there's clearly a demand, and people wanting to go to Bramford or Sarnia or Detroit or Windsor now have to drive all the way up along Wilson Street in order to get to that one access up at the west end of the community. So that's why it was taken out, and that's why I I believe we need to put it back in again. And Ted's been very supportive of me on this. we just got to work through the bureaucracy.
0: All right, but I, I'm trying to, and again, you're the, the the traffic guy. You build these things in in your previous life. So I want to count on that expertise and lean on that expertise right now. Uh, a year or so ago, when they did the exact same thing on the Aberdeen exit onto the 403, right down here at the bottom, uh, they they just extended that lane. There was, as you say, there was an acceleration lane, and then you had to merge in. Now they've made that lane, that, that curb lane, all the way up to the top. Uh, it took a little bit of work, but I mean, they, it's done, and I think makes that that entrance and that, that ramp a lot more effective right now. Did the city have to pay for that, or did the province?
2: Well, I don't think that was a widening of the Aberdeen ramp, as I recall. That was a widening at the highway. But it was similar. They had to push over into yeah. the ditch area yeah. in, in in order to get an extra lane, and they just moved the speed change lane, or speed reduction lane in that case, uh, the deceleration lane over to allow the uh, ramp to continue the So why can't they just Aberdeen? do that up so, at
0: the top of the hill?
2: Well, we decided we can, and, and you now they didn't bump into bridges uh, down at that location where we have the bridge at Gulf Links Road, but we now have, I said in my opening comments, we have the geometrics are approved and the designs approved, so we have that behind us, it's, it's now um, procurement and funding is, is, is the two big hurdles we have to clear next.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I share your concerns about the provincial uh, procurement policy. I mean, we don't want to go back to the stadium debate, but I mean, we, we know how the government handles that process, and, and I'm not impressed, and I know certainly you aren't either. Uh, you've still got the scars from that, and I think we're all going to wear that for the next little while. But if they're if they insisting at this stage, though, Lloyd, that the city has to pay the cost of this— Yet they are the ones that are saying that you have to follow our procurement process you have to do it our way by our standards. They seem to want to call all the shots but they don't want to see the bill at the end.
2: Well that's <laughs> I couldn't have said it any clearer than that uh, and that's why last time because they simply said no you aren't doing it. I had to go political and um, you know if once we've exhausted our opportunities with MTO staff <clears throat> excuse me I intend to go back political again and talk to Ted.
0: And and do you that's get Ted, that's Ted McMeekin, of course. Of course, yeah, he was the MPP for the uh, the area, uh, and and, right. and of course works in with the premier too, the parliamentary secretary for the premier, and and, and that's obviously a great uh, you know idea, and that's a great partner to have in a situation like this. But uh, once the it, who's saying no to you? Is it MTO that's saying we're not going to pay for this? MTO staff, yes. All right, um, and and how does Ted respond to that?
2: I haven't taken this back to him yet. This this is information that. Uh, I I, I met with staff two weeks ago. I said, give me an email summarizing all the outstanding issues and where you hit a wall. I got that last Thursday, and I'll be addressing that with Ted. And, uh, of course, I'm also putting the arm on Ted. You know, he's going to get tired of me calling him for some help from the Arts Centre in Ancaster, too. But, uh, you know, he's been very receptive before, so when I take this back to him now, uh, I'm out of town for a week, but when I'm back, one of my first calls will be to him to see what we can do to move this along.
0: I mean, the fact that uh, maybe the dragging their heels is too strong a, an expression here, but the fact that the the staff—I mean—and I'm talking about the provincial staff here, not Ted McVeighan himself—but the staff seems to be dragging their heels on this issue right now. Uh, it doesn't bode well for the fact that the city is actually trying to create some sort of a partnership here with the province uh, about doing an awful lot of work on 403 over the next couple of years to try to—I uh, I guess that first of all make it more safe, and I think obviously more practical as well. Uh, if they can't come on side on this one it makes you wonder just how dedicated they be to some of those other things including the expansion that you've talked about
2: well yeah and, 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 <laughs> I've talked to you in your show about this before and we uh, had a discussion of public works recently also that pinch point uh, where four leans meet too at the link but um, you know but we put through another resolution now uh, recently to ask the province to accelerate the the uh, Uh, completion of the environmental assessment because that takes a long time that has to be done first the province is committed to widening it but they first have to go through the environmental assessment and the minister said in his letter right now we don't have funding to do that and so uh, very recently i put that resolution which was approved by council to ask them to accelerate that environmental assessment process and get it moving
0: What's have you got numbers? What's this going to do to the traffic congestion and and for those that maybe live in other parts of the city through Ancaster, uh, they they don't or not in Ancaster rather they probably don't understand the fact. That Wilson Street, more often than not, around three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon, is gridlocked. I mean, all the way up the Ancaster Hill, uh, all the way probably to a, to about, uh, I would think, Fiddler's Green. I mean, it's 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 a very congested road because of the people simply saying, "Look, at, we can't access the highway, so we've got to go all the way up here and and go all the way up to uh, to Fiddler's Green and then try to access the highway from there." Uh, is this going to alleviate some of that gridlock that happens almost every day now?
2: Oh, absolutely, but. Um you know, Wilson Street goes uh, even west of Phyllis Green. You get out past the plazas out to uh, uh, Todd Street is where it starts to pick up. And now, of course, the road's closed because it's going through a major reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And by the way, to your listeners who are interested, uh, I just got off the phone with the project manager in that project about uh, 20 minutes ago. And he tells me that the expectation is that uh, the road will be reopened with uh, three lanes. Um, so it'll be finished with the exception of some work behind the curb by November 15th. And uh, that'll be a relief to people who are caught in that congestion. And also, to for the interest of your listeners who live in the area, this is the last phase of Wilson Street. We're done. We've gone through five phases. We said that the public was very good about sucking it up uh, through these closures. But it, uh, I think, as we experienced in the last four phases, the public was very uh, satisfied with the finished result and will be the same this time. On that project, I'm not, sorry, I'm switching gears here. On you, but that project, we ran into significant problems with Cochicle fiber optics. And so uh, they won't be finished by November 15th, and so there's a section of sidewalk on the north side that will not be completed this year because uh, Co has to finish their fiber optic relocation through the winter. So that will be done in the spring, as will top asphalt.
0: Which is when most of these construction projects will start in the spring. I mean, there's pretty much a hiatus on some of this heavy-duty stuff over the winter months. But are you confident that this ramp is going to be a goal for next year. I mean, you'd like to get shovels on the ground. You've done a lot of the work on this. You've got the design stuff done right now. Basically, what you right now, I guess at this stage, need is cooperation with the province, i.e. money.
2: Well, quite frankly, I don't I, I don't think there's a ghost chance in hell that that thing will be opened uh, be started next year. Uh, we still have to um, uh, go through environmental assessment, which won't be a big job for that project. But uh, our capital budget is before us right now. We had a capital budget workshop on Friday for the 2018 capital budget. This project is not in there. And, and so uh, we have a lot of other uh, contractual and technical uh, hurdles to clear before it can, fact, hit the, uh, the budget. I'm hoping to put it in for 2019. It uh, give me the year to get environmental assessments done get the whole issue about funding behind us, and the procurement issue behind us.
0: All right, but with that in mind, and we understand how the process works uh, at the city, how there's a priority list, and and this is not in the top ten right now, we get that. But we've also seen some projects jump the queue. Uh, if the province were to come along and say, we'll, we'll give you half the money for this if you guys want to get building on this thing right away, does that move that up the list?
2: Well, maybe. Yeah, I I'd, I'd take that as a one-off to council to try to get their approval. I I know our our, uh, Mike Zagaric, our CFO, is very keen on leveraging money so you can get the money from other sources of, um, from other governments. Uh, We can sometimes jump the queue in this, but to your listeners, don't hold your breath on that one because generally we have to clear all the technical hurdles hurdles before it ends up on the uh, capital budget for approval.
0: Yeah, the only reason I was bringing that up is because we do know there's a provincial election coming up next spring, next June and uh, governments tend to love to throw money around to try to uh, garner shall we say support uh, and uh, and the province obviously would have this on, on if Ted is actually talking about this uh, with the premier's office I'm wondering but it sounds as if you're not quite ready for that yet
2: no I'm not quite ready but my bigger fear is that we are going through an election that things will shut down uh, I, once the writ drops uh, I'm not sure the timeline of that but uh, you know if governments change I'd be starting all over again. Uh, trying to get approval on this. So um, I, I want to get as much done through the winter as I can to uh, get it past the technical hurdles uh, before we go into the election.
0: Uh, Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson. Lloyd, thanks so much for the time today. We'll stay in touch and uh, see just how this thing is going to develop or if it's going to develop. I appreciate you talking about it today, though. Okay, thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, anybody that's traveled that into town, especially afternoon rush hour, you understand the, the, the concern here and how it's backlogging. You know, because we've talked about uh, some of the gridlock that occurs because of the four hundred three, and you see that in the mornings uh, through the east, uh, the western part of the city here, down through Ward One, onto uh, Aberdeen and, and Herkimer and streets like that, simply because people, you know, jump off the highway when they see that they're not going anywhere on the highway. Well, the same sort of thing is happening in the afternoons more often than not with Ancaster along Wilson Street and Russo, uh, which is what Mohawk turns into, of course, once you get into Ancaster. So this is something that's got to be addressed, and uh, it'd be kind of nice for the province to step up and say, look, it's our highway. We'll share the cost in this. But uh, we'll see (laughs) just how generous these guys feel. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML.
0: There was a a meeting last night here in Hamilton. Uh, What's going on here is uh, there's a, a group going around called the Ontario Health Coalition that's going around the province right now trying to get input from communities like Hamilton, about the level of health care, and uh, not just the bricks and mortar, although that has to be part of the discussion, certainly, but the services available and the services being offered uh, to patients and families of patients, et cetera. And uh, it was an interesting meeting. We've heard many of those stories, of course, on this program over the last number of months when you've called and told us about your experiences. And uh, it's uh, going to help them, I guess, shape uh, their platform and, and their, their concerns as uh, we move forward to what is going to be, of course, a provincial election about a year from now. Joining us to talk about the uh, the report and the uh, the work of the uh, the coalition is Natalie Miro. She's the executive director and uh, report co-author for the Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, Natalie, first and foremost, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today.
3: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what you heard last night and and the, and your impressions of the meeting.
3: Oh, I thought it was uh, the discussion was really rich. You know, people. People had lots of very um, first-hand experiences that they could share, and um, there were people there ranging from nurses to um, support workers to patients and their families, and they all brought their perspectives. And, you know, it's neat to say, people are so compassionate, and they really are so intelligent about, what's going on and um, it's really it's often heartbreaking and last night certainly was um, but also uh, really important and so helpful to what we're trying to do so it was great people talked about um, well one one woman talked about having gone to the emergency department and sent home seven times without um, getting proper treatment and um, ultimately, her child died. Um, it was awful. People talked about um, how full the, the hospitals are, how many people are lying in hallways and can't get in. One woman talked about uh, her husband who um, had dementia, was, in the, was admitted to the hospital uh, for something else and developed dementia and ended up in there for the better part of a year and how much pressure was on her to move him out even though there was no appropriate place or safe place to put him and how um, awful it was for her family her son to fly in from across the country to help her advocate to make sure that he could get proper care it's just that the on the hospitals is so great because the have been so severe um that but, but both getting in and being pushed out uh, you know is a, is just a story that many many families face
0: you know it's 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 got to be frustrating because I know when I have conversations with healthcare providers Natalie and one of the greatest frustrations I think and it causes a consternation is that as as important as this is, because every time there's a study done, they say, "Well, what's a what's the your top priority?" Well, it's always healthcare. We always say that, but we don't talk about it and we don't think about it very much until we have to access the system, uh, which means that not a whole lot gets done because it doesn't happen all the time. Not all of us go into hospitals all the time. Maybe as patients, maybe as visitors but we don't re- realize the nuts and bolts of what's going on. And for the people that work in that environment on a daily basis and they see the shortcomings, it's it's got to be very, very difficult for them to come to grips with this, knowing that it doesn't seem to be on too many other people's radar.
3: I think, um, you know, I think, the w- I definitely think you're right, and people don't really realize how bad it's gotten until they actually try to access care, and then, of course, it's too late, um, and you're not really in a position to, you know, start advocating and so on did express some frustration that um, you know the community hadn't kind of risen up about the cuts. but then again, you know, it's our job to organize that, and we need to do a better job of that, I think. Um, but but I think what what struck me about what the care workers were saying, the nurses and the support workers and so on, um, was how so frustrated they were at um, how the schools were. How it caused um, that this culture has become pervasive in hospitals,
0: and and they're in large part of the problem uh, that that discussion is not taking place, uh, and then we hear announcements from from governments uh, like the one we heard yesterday uh, that leads some to believe well they're addressing the problem and the the refer the, uh, the announcement I'm referring to of course was uh, the ministry announcing that they're going to open up 1,200 beds. Uh, on an emergency basis. As a matter of fact, they're reopening a couple of hospitals in the in the Toronto area because of this. But uh, I, I commented about this this morning, and my concern at that time is that it's, this is a Band-Aid solution. It's not really addressing the real problem, is it?
3: No, it's very much a temporary Band-Aid. I did the math. Ontario has the fewest hospital beds left in Canada of any province. And we're actually at the bottom of the entire OECD. Only Mexico and Chile have fewer hospital beds than us. I did the math. You add those 1,200 beds to the existing 34,000-some-odd beds, and we're still at the bottom of Canada. It, and they're temporary and transitional. The, the Minister has been very, very clear about that. The plan, the fiscal plan, that—that that is the budget plan of the government, is to increase funding a bit next year and then decrease it again after the next election. So, no, it's not enough. It's a real problem. It's a huge problem, and Ontarians need to make this an election issue. Otherwise, we're not going to have a solution. We need a long-term plan to reinvest in our public hospitals. That is, there needs to be funding. We're at the bottom of the country in funding now. But that money needs to go to care and not executive salaries and not reams of consultants. We need to reopen beds at least to get you know some kind of plan to get us back to a reasonable benchmark so that we don't have people stranded for days trying to get in and people being pushed out in dire health conditions and so on. And well, because so there's, a, cause there's a bigger
0: stuff. number here, Natalie, and, and I know your coalition has talked about this, yes. but I don't hear the government talking about this. Forget about the 1,200 beds for a second. Like I say, that's that's a short Band-Aid solution, and it's a nice little headline for them. But the yes. bigger number here is 4,000 on any given day. 4,000 people are in hospital beds in this province right now that probably don't need to be there or or shouldn't be there because they don't really need the primary care that a hospital delivers, but there's nowhere else for them to go. So the government is 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 ignoring the fact that you're absolutely right. They have to invest in long term care facilities. They have to invest in hospice care. They have to invest more in home care. Uh, and, and open up those four thousand spaces in the, in those hospital beds. That that that's, uh, that's going to go a long way towards addressing the problem and and the crisis situation that we're heading toward.
3: Part of it is for sure. I mean, they've been short about twenty thousand long term care beds. There've been twenty thousand people or more between twenty and thirty thousand. On wait lists since I started 17 years ago, and that has never changed. So definitely there's a severe shortage of long-term care beds, but there's also a severe shortage of hospital beds. Mm -hmm. So both have to to be built. I mean, the bottom line is that in a public health care system, the job of government is to measure and try and meet population need for services. That's the first thing that they need to do. All of these, like, management trends and bean counting and all that stuff really has been a distraction from... What really should be happening, and it isn't happening. The last bed study in Ontario was done in 1994. Um, You know, it's 2017, and there's no plan, and there's no plan to bridge the gap here, and that's what we need. So, we're asking people to, you know, please, if they can, keep sending in your stories and your experiences and your recommendations. Good stories, too, you know, uh, innovations that will work to improve things, the whole range. Um, we're collecting them until the end of October, and then we're going to come up with a report and the recommendations like the ones you're talking about. What do we need in long-term care? What do we need in hospitals? What do we need to improve the quality of care for people uh, and communication with patients and so on? And the top recommendations that we think will make the most difference, we're going to bring them to all of the political parties and we'll publicize this very, very well, and we'll ask them to make firm commitments on those things leading into next June's provincial election. So hopefully we can turn this thing around.
0: This this is a capacity issue to a certain extent, isn't it, really? There just aren't enough yeah. beds. Yeah, it's just, it's just like sure. the housing crisis that we went through here last year. The province didn't seem to get it. The, the reason that the prices were spiking was because there was not enough capacity. We didn't have enough spaces for people to live. We don't have enough people to have spaces in hospitals to look after people. It's it's really a numbers game.
3: Yeah, it is. It is that, and then there's also you know they've they've reformed the system in ways that have brought about a whole army of kind of middle managers and technocrats and so on and you know more more money is going to monitoring fewer and fewer beds and services right so what we need to do is streamline things and actually get that money to care. people expect and demand that and I think the people of Ontario would support more funding going to the hospitals but they want to make sure that it's going to go to improve care and not to, you know, give massive increases to executives and so on. And and we want to assure ourselves of that, too. And so I think it's it's a partly a question of, and, and at its core, it's a question of capacity. Reopen the operating rooms, you know, run the MRI machines for longer, reopen the hospital beds and so on. Um, but then also a question of reform to ensure that frontline care and the vital support services that matter to patients, but, you know, the food, the security, the cleaning, and those things are the priorities, um, and not, uh, you know, a whole bunch of consulting and technocrats and all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, and, I, and because it, what it does is it's forcing hospital boards to be penny pinchers in situations and, and trying to be creative, and and some of them have done a pretty decent job of it, but they've got to know... In their heart of hearts, Natalie, that they're not providing the quality of care that they really should be providing, and their excuse always is, "Well, we don't have enough money." But uh, the money is there; it's really just how the money is being spent.
3: It's a bit of both, right? I mean, Ontario finds its hospitals at the lowest rate in Canada, so um, and we're far from from the average, you know. And hospitals have been shrinking as a percentage of the provincial budget, we, you know, going way back into the 1970s. So for for decades hospitals have shrunk as a percentage of the provincial budget, even as we have a growing aging population and healthcare as well in total has been shrinking as a proportion of um, the provincial budget. So there's been a lot of propaganda, you know, spending out of control and so on. But the truth is the figures and these are the government's own figures is that, you know, the trend is the other way. Hospitals are shrinking, healthcare as a whole is shrinking um, and, and, hospitals are shrinking even faster and uh, and at this point we really are scraping the bottom of the barrel. I mean nobody has cut as much as Ontario has. The evidence is very clear. We have the least amount of nursing care per patient of anywhere in the country and the gap grows bigger every year. We have the fewest hospital beds left of any you know peer jurisdiction in the world. We have um, the shortest lengths of stay. Patients are pushed out quicker and sicker and as a result we believe we have the highest readmission rates for patients in the country, and that gap is growing bigger. You know, and and this just can't go on. I mean, the plan can't be to just continue to cut hospitals forever. Real suffering is resulting from it. And so we have to get hospital leadership and politicians to pay attention, put the resources in, and make sure that those resources go to the to the priorities of the public, to care and to the support services, make the quality of life, uh, you know, when you're in hospitals and make, make, make you get better.
0: We've got about a minute left here. There's, a, I know something that came up at the meeting last night, and I'm sure it's ha- happened at other meetings as well. Uh, patient advocacy uh, within the hospital system is, is so very important. Oftentimes, as you say, when people do engage the system and they have to go into a hospital for a loved one or for themselves, uh, they don't know how to navigate the system, uh, and and of course they're in a crisis situation. That's why they're in a hospital. For heaven's sakes, you, you really need that that advocacy. You need somebody who's going to look after them and say, "Look, at we know what you need. We're going to provide this, and we're going to be the liaison between you and the staff, whether it's the nurses, the doctors, you know, the the, the, the caretaking staff, whatever the case might be." That that's got to be a stronger focus, I would think.
3: Oh, you're so right. Everywhere we've been, people talk about they need to have that. For the family and so on. In Toronto, there's, uh, there's an organization. It's a legal clinic, the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and they do that for elderly people. Um, and they say that you know their chief complaint that they get is, is the pressure put on people to move them out of hospitals, places that are not of that are inappropriate, or without care at all. Um, we need a lot more of that in communities. Uh, we, our office, get, is inundated with.
0: No, we seem to be losing you, Natalie. Unfortunately, I think we've got a bit of a bad hookup here. But uh, well, I'll, I'll let you go then at this point, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time with us and continued good luck with the, uh, the work that you're doing uh, with the uh, the group, of course, uh, and the Ontario Health Coalition, that is, and, uh, and in preparing documentation. And I'm sure that after the report's done and uh, you develop policies and, and some initiatives that uh, all three political parties can look at, that uh, we'll have you back on, and we can talk about that and, uh, and just see how the parties are going to respond to some of those recommendations.
3: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.